Okay, so we're in Genesis chapter 34. We're going to kind of kick things off different today. I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to sort of enter into the the text. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the book of Genesis, this book of beginnings. And uh, so much of this, uh, the the heart of Genesis in chapters 12 through 50 is following uh, the four patriarchs from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then into Joseph. And so, Father, as we look at their lives and we see their imperfections, their failings, uh, Lord, it becomes apparent to me that it's not because of their good, not because of their faithfulness, not because uh, that they became individuals that are worthy and honorable in their own right, uh, but they were failed men, fallen men, um, with lots of imperfections, and it's you who are the perfect God, the merciful God, the gracious God, and the God who operates by faith. And so today we come to a story that is, that is difficult, and I pray, Father, that you would help us uh, to see the storyline uh, of Genesis and the unfolding of uh, how the Messiah came to be. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see... Um, truths from this passage, this text, these, these couple chapters, Lord, that we would see, uh, Lord, that which you would have us see. Uh, I do pray for those. Um, uh, this passage can be hard for some people, and so I do pray, Father, uh, that for those um, who have experienced uh, any sort of trauma, uh, Lord, that your spirit would help them and that you would provide healing uh, to them. Uh, and it's in uh, your name, I pray. Amen. Sorry, this is like a really rough passage. This is a super hard passage. Um, so I have like notes and I have the passage. It's, uh, it's, it's a particularly infuriating passage to me. Um, it, it, it's, it's horrific. Um, and and so I'm just going to kind of, let's, where to start here? Can I get my mind? I started, my mind has a whole lot of things. I've been like, I weed whacked all day yesterday just to try to like clear my thoughts about where to land on this one. Um, so when we started out Genesis, I knew there were some stories that were difficult. And my my... My plan when I started Genesis was to sort of grab the the thread to kind of follow the main themes and and not to get bogged down in sort of like sidetrack stories. I wanted to sort of give the overarching thought of Genesis. And and so today my initially my plan was to cover chapter 34 and so I'm grappling with chapter 34 uh that the thumbnail of this is a very young girl gets raped, a dad does nothing, and then the brothers murder the whole town. So you have this, you, you, and then it ends. <laughs> it's like, okay, uh, so what do we, what do we do with this passage? And, and so you can kind of handle two, you can go two different routes, and, and both are fine routes. So if we were gonna, to narrow in, you can really, uh, zoom in on this passage and sort of focus on what does God think about sort of sexual trauma and this sort of thing. And he has stuff to say. But if we do that, we sort of lose um, really the purpose that this chapter exists in Genesis. I don't think that this chapter exists uh, to talk about rape and sexual trauma, although it has to be touched on somewhat. Um, and and so I've opted to sort of, I thought I was going to do chapter 34 today and then chapter 35 next week, and then 36 is genealogy, so you just kind of like say, hey, this is genealogy. So I, I have, I've opted to do chapters 34 and 35 today and give you the homework of reading chapter 36 of Esau's genealogy. So we're going to kind of land uh, Genesis for our break, uh, sort of leading up to, to Easter. And then we'll come back in the fall after going through Ephesus, Ephesus Ephesians, and we're going to look at the life of, of Joseph for the last section of Genesis. And so I really walk away from this study, like, not feeling that great about Jacob. 
Um, it, it, you know, we come into this and think, oh, the patriarchs, they're like super great, awesome guys. And, and that the math doesn't work out that way. Um, so where we find ourselves is, is Jacob was up north, way up north. Remember a few chapters ago, he, he lied to his dad. He tricked his dad. He stole from his brother. He fled. He leaves for 20 years. He gets a couple wives, a bunch of kids. And then uh, the situation grows so bad there that he, uh, God tells him, hey, it's time for you to re- return back home, which is the bottom arrow of, of Hebron, the very southern region, just sort of west of the Dead Sea. And so he makes his way back at where sort of where these, that, the first arrow ends. And he meets his brother Esau. And he and his brother Esau sort of come to terms with, with, with where they are. There's, 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 we can say there's at least peace between them. And it seems that there's reconciliation from the last couple of weeks that, that uh, Jacob said, I'm sorry. He, he repays him for that which he stole. He sort of atoned for that which he had robbed his brother from in the birthright. And then he basically heads west. He did lie to his brother because his brother's like down here in this area. And he said, I'll catch up with you. But he had no intention of catching up with him. And he goes over to Shechem and he parks it in Shechem. So he doesn't end up where he's supposed to end up. He's supposed to end up down south. So he parks it up north, and between the end of chapter 33 and the beginning of chapter 34, about 10 years elapse. So a lot of time has gone by. He's parked, he's, he's parked it in Shechem. He's been comfortable. If you're just reading through, you kind of think that all of this stuff is, is sort of instantaneous, but they've, they've really parked it there. Uh, they're with the Canaanites. They've began to sort of assimilate into their culture with their gods. We see that uh, by, time, by the time we get to chapter 35, you'll see that they've acquired a bunch of false gods of the local people, and they, they abandoned them at that point. And so we pick up our story in verse 34 with a, just a horrific event. Uh, now, Dinah or Dina... I'll probably I'll probably mix it up both I'll say it both ways. It's Dina in Hebrew and Dina in the English enunciation. So who knows how I'll say it? Um, now, uh, Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. And so they have been here. It depends on who you read. How much time has gone along at this point? Uh, Jewish. Jewish commentators hold that she could be as young as six years old, which I have a hard time with. Like, I don't think it's that young, six to eight. Um, if you broaden your search, m- most um, scholars hold that she's like in her young teenage years, um, just that she's heading out, like, you know, like our reasoning, you don't think a six to eight-year-old girl would be going out. Um, the, the idea of this is that she's a, a young teenage girl, she sneaks out. Josephus holds that this was a teenage girl uh, sneaking out of the house, so to speak, to go uh, hang out with her Canaanite girlfriends in the middle of the night. So she's not necessarily up to the most honorable thing, but it's also, um, there seems to be a lot of freedom or something. She, we don't have a lot of details. So she, she heads out. The impression is that she's sneaking out into the town uh, to hang out with with the girls of the land. Uh, when Shechem, now Shechem, now we're not we're not talking about the town. The town is Shechem, but now there's a guy named Shechem who is like royalty of this town. So he is a powerful guy. Uh, when she- Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, saw uh, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her. He took her and lay with her by force. And so she's raped. Horrific event that happens here. Verse 3. He was deeply attracted to Dina, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Uh, 
So some time unfolds. This event happens. He goes to his dad. He's like, I love her. I don't think this is love. He wants to acquire her for a, a wife. They would just they could just take the girl for property. They had authority. He talks to dad. Dad's like, okay, I'll go take care of the situation here. Uh, we hear in verse 5 that Jacob, that is Dina's father, uh, he heard that he had defiled Dina. This is not consensual. This is, uh, we see by the whole unfolding of events, there is no dispute uh, about this incident. This this was rape. Uh, Jacob heard that he had defiled Dina, his daughter, but his sons were the livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. You could probably just highlight Jacob kept silent. Jacob is very passive throughout this whole unfolding. As a father of, of daughters, as a shepherd of a flock, this is something that like infuriates me. Like my blood boils. Last night, I'm out at Camp Julian Oaks. I, as I've gotten to participate in this ministry, um, as a counselor, they need counselors. If you want to volunteer to go out and to participate and to serve and to love on these young people who are in the foster care system, to hear stories of these young ladies who are like raped and molested by their fathers and family members. It's like, I want to rip off heads. Like, and I'm not saying that that's what Christ wants me to do. I'm just saying like my flesh, like what comes out of me is just anger that how could somebody do this? And to see this father, Jacob remained silent. And you, that just summarizes how he sort of, I almost wish he would just say silent because when he speaks, it just gets worse. So he stayed silent until they came in. Then uh, Hamer, the, Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with them. So the dad of the son that raped the Dina goes to meet with the father. Um, now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and they were very angry. Now we're getting a reaction that I think is is the 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 right reaction, like the right emotional response. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying how it played out was right. Um, but when you hear about a man doing this to a girl, it should cause grief and it should cause anger. Like this is not something that should happen because he had done a disgraceful thing in the land of Israel, which is a little, a little side note, less angry, less like, it's very interesting that this land is now like that. The writer, um, Jacob has been named Israel. This land would become Israel. But here he's saying, like, in the storytelling, while the land hasn't become theirs yet, they're seeing this land as, like, this is God's land, that this is the land of Israel, and this happened within this nation, um, that this disgraceful thing happened in the land of Israel. By laying with Jacob's daughter, such a thing ought not to be done. That's pretty straightforward. Um, but Hamer, Hamer, the father of Shechem, spoke with them. So he's talking to the dad and the brothers. There's 11 brothers at this point. The soul of my, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. And so there's this pleading for this arrangement to happen uh, for marriage. So, uh, so, so at this point, if we're just reading this, you can see how it would be very easy to launch into a thing uh, that rape is bad. Like, like, that's obvious. Like, rape is bad. If you've been victimized in this way, statistically speaking, if you're a girl in this population, like, there, there is more than one girl in our presence that has been the victim of something along these lines. And my heart breaks for you. Um, I have anger in this area. But if we want to, like, as much as I could launch there, the bigger picture of Genesis, that doesn't seem to be what's, what's at play here. Verses 9 through 10 give us sort of a, a, a picture of, of what's happening. And I think while, like, why this chapter is in the Bible here, then the guy who's like the, the, the ruler of this area, 
that God has promised to give to Jacob through the Abrahamic covenant that was passed on to Isaac and then passed on to Jacob, that God has made these promises to him that I will give you this land, you will be a people, and you will have all of this stuff. Instead of returning back home to where he has come, he takes a 10-year detour in, in the land of Shechem. And he's assimilated with the people. And he's not really thinking about God. He's becoming a Canaanite. And as he's no longer living for God and taking God seriously, bad things are beginning to happen. And now in the midst of this situation that's unfolded, the guy who has all of the power in the land comes and he wants to make a deal. Verse 9, intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us and circle the next two words, the land. The land that God has promised to them. The land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. We can become one people. We can multiply. We can be a great nation. The land that is here can be yours. Uh, The two people will become one people. This is a huge temptation that's presented to Jacob to circumvent the promise of God. And I think that this is what's at play here. And, And Jacob is going down this road. If it wasn't for his sons, I believe that Jacob probably would have sealed this deal and gone forward because, and the reason I think that is because he actually does seal the deal. Like he does do this. Um, Shechem also said to her, her father and to her brothers, if I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much, uh, ask me ever so much, bridal payment and gift, I will give according uh, as you say to me. But give me the girl of marriage. Okay, where are we at time? Okay, a couple things to say here. Uh, just to kind of, so you have a couple rabbit trails to go down on your own, because um, I've been in, down them all week. It's like, so what does God have to say about this subject? Like, like what does God have to say in this area? Um, the cliff notes, first and foremost, in the context of this very passage, we, we have to remember uh, Deuteronomy, Exodus, they don't exist yet. Like, they, there is no Bible at this point for them to follow. They have a direct link to God. They don't necessarily have, like, a, a playbook, a Bible, like, hey, how do we handle this stuff? Um, I do believe that the heart of God was the same. So if you were to go to, and I'm not saying to go there, I didn't even write the verses, so I can't even, like, accidentally go there. But if you were, like, over in Deuteronomy chapter 22, also in Exodus 22, there's some, like, some passages and sort of the how rape was handled then was complicated from from a very from a Western American sort of perspective. We're we're removed from the context a couple thousand years, like four or five, uh, more than two thousand years, many many thousands of years, um, and and as I studied this, at first glance, it seems really odd. But then as I've reflected on this this week, the reality is I think that God's treatment of, of uh, rape is way harsher than our government's stance on rape. So the, the basic flowchart, man and a woman. If a woman is betrothed, which means she's engaged, which is basically, uh, at that point, she's basically married, even if she's not married, but legally she's, she's bound to be married. It can happen at a very, very early age. If, uh, if she is, if, if the situation happens in the city and she screams, the guy is killed and she is preserved. If it happens in the city and she doesn't scream, nobody sees help, then they're both executed because it's, it's, it's viewed that it was like a consensual thing that was wrong. If it happens in the countryside, the woman, regardless of the circumstance, is presumed innocent because nobody could hear. So they just, the, 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 the presumption is that she tried to fight back and resist. So just the guy is killed. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, it's where if you keep reading and then it comes to the, if it's, if it's a, if it's a girl that isn't engaged or, or married, 
then it's a different situation. Then it very much looks like the situation that's presented here is that the dowry has to be paid and the guy is given basically like a life sentence to carry, to care for this young lady. And I think that the reasoning, as I've thought through this, I could be right, I could be wrong. Um, if the girl is engaged or married, she's going to be taken care of. And so the guy could be executed. In this culture, this time, if a girl was raped, then her life was a disaster. And so basically what, what happens is, I'm not, even, I'm not convinced with the, with the digging that I did, I could be wrong, um, that this would be like a marriage like you're thinking. This could be like, this guy for the rest of his life, his money is going to provide and care for this individual who he destroyed. He has to do a lifetime. And, and so in some ways, I think that this punishment is way better than, like I didn't start looking up uh, like how we handle it, but in our law, what happens is you commit against a crime against a woman, that guy, best case in situation, goes to jail. No restitution to the girl. In this case, it would be like, okay, you're going to do that, you're going to go away, but if you make a penny ever, it's going to that person for the rest of her life. Everything you earn is going to her. Um, now, there was an exception. In Exodus, the same thing happens, but the dad could say, no. I'll just take the money and you go on about your life. I, I don't want anything to do with, like, my daughter's not marrying you. Like, there could be, the dad had a way to tap the brakes. So when I look at this, what I can say is the heart of God thinks that this is absolutely vile, evil, wrong, no, no questions about it. In verse 12, um, we're going to see a part of the problem is, but give me the girl in marriage. We're going to see this word unfold in this chapter about the me, my, I. Uh, nowhere in this does, does Dina or Dinah, is she really mentioned? There's no, like, that's not even on the table. This is, these guys are, are discussing things with their own interests in mind. The, her brothers have her interests in mind somewhat. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem, and his father, Hamor, with deceit. They were a lot like their dad. They learned some lessons. They were very good at playing tricks. They're between their, between, uh, their would it be their great uncle and their dad, they learned how, the game of deceit. Uh, because he had defiled Dina, their sister, they said to, th- they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. On this condition, we will consent to you if you will become like us and that every male of you be circumcised. So now they're going to use this covenant of God that God has given to the nation of Israel that they were to be circumcised, to stand out and apart for the rest of the people. They're going to use this beautiful covenant that God has given to them to use it deceitfully to harm individuals, which isn't right. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become your people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Now their words seem reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing, because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So he was more respected than the household of his father. So he had a lot of... Uh, uh, leverage within the society. He had influence over people. So he very quickly goes and gets circumcised. So Hamer and his son came to the gate of their city and they spoke to the men of their city saying, these men are friendly with us. Therefore, uh, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for the daughters uh, to give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent uh, consent to us to live with us, to become the people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Now, this is the hard sell. Like, this is a, they're at the city gate, they have all the men, they're like, hey, this is a great deal, look at all the stuff, look at their women. Apparently, they were very beautiful based on the history of Abraham and Isaac trying to lie about their wives. Uh, they're like, guys, this is a really good deal, but there's only one thing we got to do. <laughs> And I think they're giving the same look at you're giving me. And then he continues with, will not their livestock and their property and all of their animals be ours? Let us consent to them and they will live with us. All who went out to the gate of their city listened to Hamer and to his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out uh, out of the gate of the city. Now, what's not said here 
And this is where, like, I think that at this point, I feel like that the the sons have sort of like a controlled rage within them. And so they're able to control it. The father, however, does not. And what's not written in the text is I believe at this part, he takes his little daughter, however old she is, and she gives he gives her to the guy. It just makes my blood boil. Now, verse 25, it came about on the third day. Apparently, this was the most painful day. This was not a surgical procedure like we have. I don't know if they had sharp rocks or how they did this. But, like, I'm thinking infections and, like, whatever. Uh, They are in a lot of pain. That two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, now... Remember the sort of the flow chart. We have, we have Leah, the, the older sister, Rachel and Leah and Rachel. Rachel he loved, then there was Leah. We remember that whole story. There was, uh, Reuben was the first one. Um, and then I think it was Simeon and Levi and then Judah. So we have two of the brothers. Oh, you're going to the actual, there we go. I don't have, hey, I got it right, I think. Um, so we have these two. We have, we have Simeon and Levi. These are full brothers and sisters, full brothers to the sister. So obviously they have a little bit more into this with the division of the families and how the families were laid out. So these brothers, um, verse 26, they killed Hamor. Well, I think I skipped ahead here. Uh, Verse 25, now it came about on the third day when they were in, in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamer and his, and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dina from Shechem's house. See, they rescued their sister. That's why I think that at that exchange that she was taken because she was in their possession at this point and went forth. Jacob's sons, there's controversy. We don't know. The language is vague. Um, some hold that when it says Jacob's sons, it's referring to Simeon and Levi. A, the, a vast majority of people think it's all of the sons sort of eyeball the situation and start participating here. Those that think it was just the two believe that it was just the two because down in verse 30, when Jacob uh, begins to reprimand his sons, only the two get reprimanded. I don't, I don't know. Uh, so Jacob's sons came upon the slain and they looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and which was in the field, and they captured and looted all of their wealth and all of their little ones and their wives and all that was in the houses. So these guys went to town. Um, so on one extreme, you have Jacob's absolute passivity and silence in the midst of evil. On the other extreme, you have the uncontrolled rage and violence that far exceeds um, what the punishment should be, like, what the punishment should be, that's a great question. And there's probably a lot of debate. Um, but certainly that discussion normally lies within Shechem. The whole town, every male was executed this night. And then everything that they had, including the women and the children, were then taken into slavery, basically. So that's, that's far beyond. So, so between these two extremes, there's none of these guys are, are great guys at the story. And then at this point, Jacob speaks, and you almost wish that he wouldn't speak. And as he speaks, I just want you to notice, if you mark in your Bible, you can circle every time he says, me, my, I, like it's all about him. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious amongst the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men, being few in number, they will gather together against me and attacking me. I will be destroyed, and I and my household. What have you guys done to me? What about your daughter? What about the wrong that was done to your da- your only daughter? Where, where are you speaking up for her justice, or her her right to be compensated, like, 
It's all about him. And the sons get the last word in this chapter. But they said, should we, should he treat our sister as a harlot? And it kind of gives you chill, like this whole thing. And so like, there I am going, how do I preach this? Like, how do I handle this one? How does this fit into the big picture? And that's the reason we have to go into the next, we just have to go into the next chapter. We're sort of like, here they are. Like horrible, horrific event. This whole chapter is really bad. In my, in my flesh, I'm like, that a boy. That's, that's how you boys take care of business, you know, like, um, but, but that's not how God says this should be dealt with. But, you know, I'm just tra- I'm transparent. That's who I am. It's just like, but so then what do we do with this? So he's like, now we just started, like, now what do we do? This is like really bad. Then in verse 35, then God speaks. Then God said to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel. Where's Bethel? That's where he was supposed to go all along, right? If we were to go back a few chapters and see the times that God spoke, starting with the time that he ran the first time at Bethel, God says, you're going to go up here, and then you're going to return to this place. And then after 20 years, he says, it's time for you to return to your land. It's time for you to return to your land, your land in Hebron. But he takes a 10-year detour in Shechem. And so now I hear God saying, like, then God, arise, go to Bethel, where I told you to go the first place. You stopped in Shechem. You assimilated with the population. You became just like them. You stopped living like me. And look at the absolute mess that you're in. Go to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So he gets the message from God. Jacob takes control of his family, and he says, he, he said to his household and all who are with him, the first thing he says is, get away with, get rid of all of your foreign idols. All of this, all of this stuff that we've taken on from the pagan culture that we're around, cleanse yourselves. Put away the foreign gods which are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments, and let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So it's like for my like extreme, like to like, Jacob, you're an idiot. I can't like what? I just want to rip your head off to like, okay, you screwed up. Now you're talking. Get right with God. We've all made mistakes. We've all been, we've all been Jacob, maybe not in the same way or the same, but we all have been like Jacob. God is super patient and he says, guys, we need to cleanse ourselves. Get rid of everything. Get rid of all of our idolatry. We're going to cleanse ourselves. We're going to purify ourselves. We're heading back to where we were supposed to go. And so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their, which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. So I get this feeling that they just had a lot of idols. It's like, dad says this, this is like a bad situation. They're like pulling out their ear. Like, I got idols here. I got idols here. I got idols. Like, I, 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 we look like the people of Canaanites. We are the Canaanites. And as they journeyed, there was a great terror among the cities that were around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luth, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. And he and all the people were with him, and he built an altar there, and he called the place El Bethel, which means God of Bethel. Because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And this chapter is going to end with like a bunch of tragedy. Like they seem to get right, but there's like consequences of their sin, and things are just going to like unfold. And I'm not even saying that this consequence of their sin, it's just a sad story. Now, Deborah, Rachel's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak, and it was named Alan Bakuth, um, Oak of Weeping. And then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram. Now, he didn't just come from Padam Aram. He came from Shechem, but it's almost like, hey, you were, when he left Laban, Laban is in Padam Aram. And it, so he's like, he's finally, 10 years later, getting to the place where he's supposed to be. And God's going to speak to him again. He's going to repeat 
the promise that he gave to him some 30 years previously. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. He called him Israel. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come to you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. So here we see the land, a nation and a land, uh, not commingled with another people, not come through uh, an ugly way. God is saying, I'm going to give you a nation. I'm going to give you this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with them. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with them and a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. So they're at this location, but that's still, they have a way, they still have to get down to Hebron. They journeyed from Bethel, and when he was there, some distance to go from Ephrath, if I'll just leave it with that one. Uh, Rachel began to give, give birth. So Rachel's pregnant. Ah, how happy is that? Like, well, you know, great joy. We learned that she's pregnant. Um, she began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. It came about when her soul was departing, for she died that she named him Ben-Onoi, the son of sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem, which is far easier to say. So she's buried on the side of the road. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. It came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Okay, so there's like all kind of issues here. Let's just go back to the next slide. Did I, did I have a little marker here? Does it work? I, didn't, I meant to, oh yeah, we're good. Okay, well, welcome to the Jerry Springer Show. Okay, okay, the battery. So we have Abraham up here, Isaac, Jacob. Remember, he wanted to marry Rachel over here. This isn't going to work. So Rachel. Then he was tricked into marrying Leah. By the end of the wedding week, he married both of them. When he married the first one, her dad gave her Zilpah as, as sort of a maid. And then when he married Rachel, she was given Bilhah. These, these two sons did all the murdering. This is the line that Jesus is going to come from. This is Dina, the five children from her. There was more that came later, uh, the, the, the story. And her name is only mentioned in genealogies going forward. She just kind of disappears from the story. Like, it's really sad. Um, so now we're told, oh, let's go over here. So we're told that Rachel, giving birth to Benjamin, she dies during childbirth. Now that leaves Bill... Bill Law, uh, her servant, which kind of puts it in a weird position. And then we're told that Reuben, the number one son, sleeps with her. It's just kind of in there. Um, if we were to go to Genesis 49.3, when we get there, like in the fall, winter, this is going to be a big event. All of the firstborn rights would have go to him, but his dad strips him of all the firstborn rights and says, because you've defiled my wedding bed. Um, so he's going to suffer a consequence. Commentators think what's going on here is because of the massive dysfunction within the family that at the death of Rachel, and we're going to see when we get this and we follow the life of Joseph, they, 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 like, I think it's pretty reasonable to expect that there's some dysfunction amongst these children. Um, I'm pretty sure that this group hated that group. I'm not sure how this group felt about that group. 
But when she dies, there's an opportunity for him to try to take the alpha male spot by sleeping with her. And so, and so most think that he's trying to take like pull position of his dad, um, which I'm sure that further compounded the relationship between these brothers and at least him, if not that group. But we just get the one sentence here. Um, now there were 12 sons of Jacob, moving on. Uh, the sons of Leah, uh, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon, then Levi, Judah, Eshachar, Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and we'll kind of move along down the line. Twenty-seven, uh, Verse 27, Jacob came to his father Isaac. Oh, this is another fascinating thing. I, wait, Isaac's still alive. Now I'm suddenly wondering about all the stuff I said earlier. Like, you know, Jacob's such a great guy 10 years ago. He goes in, he makes peace with his brother, he reconciles with his brother. What about his dad? It doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem that he made it south to go, his dad's still alive, but it doesn't seem like, who did he, like he wronged his brother, yeah, but he also wronged his dad, and it doesn't seem like he went and made peace with his dad, and suddenly, Isaac's on saying, in my mind, I'm like, oh, he's already dead, like, of course, he's an old guy, he's gone. But suddenly he makes it down, and he sees his dad, and I so wish that we had more of the story. The Bible doesn't tell us if they, we assume they reconciled, but there's 10 lost years by stopping in Shechem for sure. There's 10 lost years of uh, not knowing daughter-in-law's grandchildren. Just tragic. He came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kurdish, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years old. Isaac breathed his, breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of a ripe age. And there is this beauty here that his sons Esau and Jacob, they came together and they buried him. So there seems to be enough reconciliation that they can have a burial for their father. And then your homework is to read chapter 36 if you're having a hard time sleeping tonight. It's the whole genealogy of Isaac. It's his transition, or not Isaac, Esau. And then in chapter 37, the story of Isaac continues through the line of Joseph, and we're going to pick that up in September. But what do we do with this passage? Like, I have a whole, like, like number one, if we have in our minds that the patriarchs of the Old Testament were these good, godly men, like they have some hiccups along the way, but at the end of their lives, they kind of pulled themselves up by their bootstraps they did what was right. They 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 were great men, and they they finished well, and they finished strong. Well, the math doesn't add up. Like the math just doesn't add up. It, the, the today's story is is horrible. It's it's you have a rape by a bad man as a dad, as a shepherd of a congregation, for him to stay silent when this vile crime happened, not to do anything, only to be concerned about his himself. It makes me really mad. It makes me really mad to see this in families. We see this in families today where there's this sort of stuff and people stay silent to protect whoever. We, we see this in churches where there's sexual abuse in the churches and people stay silent for fear of what might happen to the church. That This is wrong. We, we see the unrestrained, unrestrained rage of the two brothers which I kind of like in my confession, I identify with. Like I like, like I I get it, but they've gone way too far, unrestrained, and that's not of the spirit either. Certainly, throughout the Bible, there's this 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 storyline of of God's justice and His protection of the vulnerable that everybody will give an account. And I do believe those who have committed. Uh, sexual abuse on people that they will give an account. I also believe that Jesus died for those that victimized people in that way. I, I also believe for those who have been victimized in this way, that there is hope and healing for you in Christ without a doubt. But when we look at this story, I believe that what we see is this cycle of Jacob failing continually before God. 
And God continually being patient with him, continually saying, okay, let's get back on track, kid. I'm going to do something through you. He's so patient. He's so long-suffering with Jacob. If this was me, I would not be this patient with Jacob. But that's why I'm not God. And I'm thankful for that because God has been so patient with me with all of my mistakes and failings. Um, I believe that we see, I see, I believe that we see uh, a warning of the dangers of, of partial obedience and assimilation of the culture. And this is one that we should really listen to. I genuinely, at this point of where I am, like, I am thankful for what the church went through through COVID because there was some really a shaking of the trees and really, like, Christians had to grapple with, like, do I believe? Am I going to follow after God? Am I going to be true? Like, these are, and I'm not even saying how they responded, but you had to sort of grapple with these things. And I'm thankful for that journey within my life because I do think, like, hard times, persecution, this is where refining happens, where we find out what will we really stand for and what do we really believe. When things are soft and easy and going well, it's very easy to ad- adopt the culture's values. We live in an age, you don't have to, like, like we live in an era, in an, in an era where if I make the absolute statement that there are only two genders, male and female, that is something that could cause problems with the culture around us, right? And so those who follow Christ, like, like if we want to honor God, we're going to find ourselves at a, at a crossroads. And we can say, well, I, like, I want to get along with people. And so like, eh, they can have their five different genders or whatever the number is at this point. But I'd like... Or we can say, you know what? I like. God has said He's created male and female. Amen. Thank you. I mean, that's. I mean, it's what He did. I mean, it's it it. And there's a whole bunch of other things: sex outside of marriage, and and drunkenness, and the list. There's there's plenty of things that God says. My children, if you want to follow me, you need to live according to these ways. And our culture will say, it's not that big of a deal. And it's very easy for us to say, ah, God's a God of grace. It's probably not that big of a deal. Let's just try it out. And this is like Paul in Romans 6 that say, do do we continue to go down that road that we can say that just to make God's grace seem all that bigger, he says, may it never be. So in Jacob, we see this like weak and compromised man and it's going to cost him a great deal. Like he has a tra- like it's a very sad story. Like we see the wife he loves dies. We're going to see as we get into Joseph, like his whole like he has this one son sleeping with the other. Like the he's going to lose Joseph. He's he feels that he's then he's going to lose Benjamin as this whole story unfolds. He has all of these sons that are at war with each other. It's not a pretty story. But in the midst of it, we see this God who is gracious, merciful, patient, loving, and gentle with them. And and this is where my hope comes from because I know that I'm not perfect. I know that I'm going to make mistakes. I know I'm going to stumble. And if I think that it's about Gunner's performance, then I'm in a whole lot of trouble. And if you think it's about your performance, you're in a whole lot of trouble. Our hope is in God and his mercy and his grace and the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. Today, we're pausing in Genesis and we're transitioning to sort of looking at Easter and focusing on the, the cross and, and the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. And then we're going to move into Ephesians to kind of get like a supercharged of doctrine for a couple months and then we'll get back to the story. But, but as we end here, and I look forward to the next few weeks, I'm reminded that that Jesus died for us, not just to give us something to do, like for an hour on Sundays, or maybe an hour and a half, two hours, whatever, like I'm going a little bit longer today. Um, He died so that we might have life. And what he wants from us is to say, Lord, I need you. Here's my life. Take everything from me. Because apart from you, I'm nothing. 
And so, Father, as we look at this life of Jacob, it is tragic. I, so much of this story reflects so much of what we see in our world. We see this, the, the scars, the wounds, the pains, the family cycles of sin, and people living according to their own way. We in this room, we struggle with these things. We see these things around us. We've been impacted by these things. And so, Father, I come to this text, and I I see that the world's promises and the assimilating into the, the school of thought of the world, it leads to bad places. And so, Father, I come before you, and I offer my life to you. I thank you that Jesus suffered your wrath for all sin from abortions to rape to murder to infidelity to theft. The list is long and it includes being disobedient to parents that that within us is this sinful nature that came through the fall. And so, Father, we are just so utterly helpless apart from you. If we look at the world, it's discouraging. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us as your church to stop looking at the world, but that we would look to you and that we would look to your ways, which we know are different and distinct from the world's ways. Father, we pray that you would By your spirit, Lord, help us to live for you. Help us to be in the world, but not of the world. Help us to stand for that which is right and good and that we would be an influence upon this world, that we would be your ambassadors, that we would radiate the goodness of Jesus and what he has done for us. Father, what the world needs is Jesus. We need lives that are transformed from the inside out, not conform from the outside into whatever the flavor of the day is. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to stand strong, to lean upon you, to understand your holiness, your righteousness, and that we would just bow before you and walk humbly, not just today, but all the days of our lives. We thank you, Father, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.